uh, formation series on justice and uh, uh, reconciliation. And now let's go back to, this will be actually our last section, uh, finishing up Exodus. And in order to jump back into it, we're going to turn to Psalm 19. And I'm aware that is not Exodus, but it is a perfect reflection of the section that we are in today. See, we're not in just one specific text, but rather an entire large chunk of text known as the Book of the Covenant in Exodus or the first giving of the Torah or the Law of God. And so in order to reflect there, let's start with Psalm 19. And we're going to start in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired they are, are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we want to be a people that is shaped by who you are and how you have revealed yourself to be. And in your infinite wisdom, in your infinite beauty and goodness, you have decided to, in many ways, reveal yourself in a Torah, a giving of a law, which, if we're honest, is at many times at best confusing or archaic or seemingly out of touch with where we're at. But Lord, we look at your scripture of people who have been reflecting on it and have had in these moments times where they see it as the beautiful revelation of who you are to a world. And so Lord, I pray that we would not be ones who come to your scripture and demand that it be reflect our thoughts and our mind, but rather we come to submit to it, to be shaped by your thoughts, by who you are, and therefore find goodness, find beauty and truth in your ultimate wisdom as revealed in your word and revealed in your law. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're back in the book of Exodus. And just to catch you up, if you haven't been here so far, the book of the, ex- uh, the Exodus story is a story of freeing God's people. God starts a people in the book of Genesis where after he started a good creation and has made all things good and created man and woman to rule uh, with him as, as co-rulers and as those who are uh, made in his image and have his dignity and value and the ability to create like him and to make, uh, make good over all across the world and fill the world and subdue it. They then walk away from him and instead take where God took disorder and created order, where he took darkness and created light, where there was brokenness and he creates life and unity and beauty we take a beauty we take that beauty and we create disorder we take that light and create darkness we take that 
uh, order, and we disordered again. But then God says, okay, I'm not going to leave humanity there. Rather, I'm going to create people. And he chooses one people through the Abram who becomes Abraham to become the people of God. And he says, hey, through you, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. I'm going to multiply you. You're right now, just you and your wife. You're too old to have a child, but yet I'm going to bless you with an impossible miracle child. And through that child, you're going to become a great nation, more numerous than the stars. And then you get that man who be, uh, has birth to a child who eventually, down the line, has, uh, he has his great-great-grandsons become 12 tribes, and those 12 tribes go to Egypt. And in Egypt, they are persecuted. But at the same time, God is still faithful to reveal and to be uh, true to his promise. He does make them a great nation. At this point, he grows them to be, at this point, millions of people. And as he does, he then also puts them in a place in Egypt where they are persecuted and oppressed under slavery. And so they have wicked taskmasters, and they have uh, attempted genocide by throwing all their firstborn sons into the Nile River. And God shows up and says, hey, I have promised that I am going to bless all the world through this people, and I am not unable to fulfill my promise regardless if you are being enslaved, regardless if a superpower stands against you, regardless of the Pharaoh and all his gods. I can show that I am God, and I am going to accomplish that which I said I will do Exodus is a story of saying there is nothing that stands in the way of me being faithful to what I said I will do in you. Which is a helpful and encouraging word if you ever have a time where you look at media, you look at life, you look at the world and you say, like, I don't see what God's doing, I don't see how he's bringing the kingdom, but yet throughout his scripture in the book of Exodus, it is a constant reflection of God saying, I am bringing a kingdom of life and of peace and of joy. And you watch. There's nothing that will stand in my way of doing. And so in Exodus, God frees this people, brings them out. He redeems them from slavery. He brings them through the wilderness where he's shaping them and teaching them to depend on him. They have a food shortage and they, teach, uh, they learn to depend on him for food. They have a water shortage. They learn to depend on him for water. They are attacked by, uh, by other nations out in the wilderness. They learn to uh, rely on him for safety. And as they teach, as God teaches them and walks with them in the wilderness, teaching them to be formed into those who are dependent upon him, they then come to a mountain where God forms a covenant, an official ceremony to say, hey, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And then we get chapter 21 and throughout the rest of the book, which is the beginning of the giving of the Torah, where often translated the law which is the most life-giving and joyful part of Scripture, said nobody ever, except for one person, but they were lying, and so they broke the Torah, and they were killed by God. And, well, that's not exactly true. There's the, very much so the case of, like, what you do when you read the law, a tip, typically, is you just do the biblical version of swipe right or left or whatever, and you move on to what's ever next, because you're getting 613 thou shalts and thou shalt nots, that at times are either boring and dry or, again, seeming archaic or, or just seeming maybe backwards or maybe even maniacal. I mean, this is where you get don't eat shellfish, don't wear polyester blended fabrics, no tattoos, uh, how to deal with molds in your house, women being unclean during or after their period from entering the temple, cutting off hands or touch, uh, for touching genitalia, killing animals, killing people as punishment, slavery, just to name a few. And in all of this section, 
typically we want to jump over it. We want to jump to Jesus when he's asked, hey, what's the greatest commandments? He says, well, I'll give you two because they tie together as the greatest commandment together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, body, strength, your, your mind, your strength. And the second, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On this, hang all the law and the prophets. You say, awesome, let's just go to that version. A lot quicker to read in the Bible read-through plan. But the problem is, is you have Jesus at the same time saying, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I'm not removing a stroke or a comma from it. And as you read through Scripture, which is the revealed will of God, where all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable through teaching and, and rebuke and training and growing up in godliness, you get the law. A section that skeptics love to point at and say, look at your God. This is who he is. He's not worthy of worship. And if we're honest as Christians, we don't want to look into the law because we're kind of afraid that they're right based off of that analysis of what we see here. I mean, if you just flip over to Exodus 21, the first section, law is about slaves. Like, well, I don't know what to do with that. You're going to continue on and you're going to find about, hey, if a man dishonors his father and mother, you shall put him to death. Which would really reduce the Livingston family really quickly. And you have all these moments and these laws where you're Again, I'm confused, I'm baffled, I don't know what to do. And then you get to things like Psalm 19, where it's going to say, hey, your law is sweeter than honey. Your precepts are good for making wise the simple. It's better than gold. You're going to get Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffer, but his delight is in the law, the Torah of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. Or you get Psalm 119, the largest chapter of the entire Bible, which is essentially a love note to the law of God. Again, just resounding this appeal of I love and I'm shaped and I dwell on God and who he is and his wisdom through stuff like Exodus 21 through the end of the book. And so I want to just for a moment this morning, if you would, please, reserve judgment from the law. And let's just look at it in maybe a way that you're not familiar with doing and ask ourselves, maybe it's not the Bible that's missing something when it talks about the goodness of God's law. Maybe it's us. And so I just want to take this morning just to walk through how do we read the law or the Torah of God and how do we actually see God's beauty, life, wisdom, and revelation in it. And so... That being our objective for today, let me just give you a couple resources because I will admit, as I did last service, I'm still very much so being shaped and learning how to deal with the, the law, the Torah of God. And so I just want to point you to resources because there will be parts of the sermon that I'm still trying to work through as clear as I possibly can, but I fear will not be as clear as I would like it to be. And so I would encourage you to, to pursue some of these resources to even just study more on this yourself. Uh, for that which I am fallible and will not be able to communicate clearly. Two resources I'd give you just for simplicity's sake. One, uh, the Bible Project has done a lot of work in this as of late. Uh, they have done a video series on a reading the law or a five-minute video on it as well as they've done about a six-episode <laughs> podcast series, which is very helpful if you're a podcast listener and those who would prefer to uh, read the book of a biblical scholar, 
which, I mean, the Bible Project, they, they have a scholar there too, but John Walton, who was the professor, Old Testament professor at Wheaton College, uh, recently wrote his book, The Lost World of the Torah, where he discusses what exactly is the life-giving nature of the law. And so, with those being some resources for you, and I may admit I'm drawing a lot from those right now, uh, let's jump into it. And so, uh, let's just, again, examine how do you read the law of God in a way that is actually life-giving and revealing of the wisdom of God. And the first one is this. You have to remember when you get to Exodus 21 through the end of the book that this law is rooted in a narrative. When we were in the spiritual formation series of Scripture, we had a whole sermon to say, hey, the Bible is not primarily a book of do's and don'ts and how to make God happy with you or angry with you. Ultimately, the Bible is a singular story told through narrative, told through prose and poetry, told through the discourse of the law, and it is all weaving together to tell a story of a God who makes good and beauty and life and vitality and humans in his image, who then rebel and walk away from him. But yet as he pursues them in their brokenness, he restores them to himself, and through people who have walked away from him, he now brings a kingdom dispelling darkness, dispelling disease, dispelling sin, dispelling the demonic, dispelling all that which opposes us, and a kingdom of life, beauty, justice, truth. And so in that, the law is very much so needed to be seen in that context. Because you actually get a foreshadowing of of the law in the very first chapters of the book of, of Genesis. There you get God creating, again, as I said, a good, beautiful, and uh, an ordered world. And he creates humanity in his image to rule over it with him. That while in other religions, humans are just the slaves to get them their food, that God says, no, I make all people good and in my image and put them to rule in my world and to be a part of creating the world and culture and life with me. Fill the world and subdue it, he says. And then as he does, he says, hey, I'm making a covenant between me and you. And you get this time where the first man, the first woman come and before God and are united together and are united to God. And as God does, he does as all uh, covenants do, he has covenant terms. He says, hey, here's my one covenant term. I want you to eat of any tree of the garden, to enjoy all that I've made, except for this one is the knowledge of good and evil, or some have translated the knowledge of good and bad. And ultimately he's saying, hey, this isn't just some arbitrary, hey, I just don't want you to eat mangoes or whatever. This is rather in a moment where he's saying, hey, I want you to receive wisdom from me. Don't take it for yourself. Don't look over, discern for yourself, and take but rather with an open hand, come and walk alongside me in the garden. Walk with me in the cool of the day. I'll show you what it is to be human. I'll teach you how I've designed you, how I've designed this world. You can't be trusted to grab and take wisdom on your own terms. You'll pervert it every time. But come and receive it from me. And then you get Genesis 3, where God says, hey, listen to my voice. And said specifically, you have the man, the woman, listening to the voice of another, the opposer. And as they listen to that voice, it, it then says, says that uh, Eve, the woman, 
She saw, uh, when she's talking with the serpent, the opposer of God, uh, says in Genesis 3, 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she sees it. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And God then later says to Adam, he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, implication, you have not listened to my voice. You have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. So he banished the human at the east of the garden, or he banished the humans, and at the east of the garden of uh, Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way of the tree of life. He says, hey, you've entered death and destruction in, and I'm not going to allow you to do that now in my good and right and good, uh, true garden. I'm going to remove, remove you from here. So we were meant to rule with God, but humanity doesn't listen to his voice. They listen to another, and it creates a world of murder and greed and immorality and war and oppression and disease and death. And then, as I already mentioned, you flash forward in the book of Genesis. And you get Abraham. God finds him as Abram. He gives him a new name, Abraham, eventually. And he says to him, hey, I'm going to make a new people through you. And I'm not going to... uh, I'm going to give you a miracle child, even though you are incapable of having children. I just want you to wait and receive that from me. Listen to my voice. Walk with me. And then you get Genesis 16, 1 through 6. Listen to the reflections of Genesis 3 in here. It said, Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah, implication, not listening to the voice of his God. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the voice of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw, Sarah, that is, that Hagar had conceived, she looked at contempt with her mistress. And Sarah said to Abram, May the wrongs done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with, your, do with her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly uh, with Hagar, and she fled from her. And so you get this narrative where, again, Abram, the one who is meant to rule as God's new heir, listens not to the voice of his God, but listens again to the voice of another. And he looks and he takes. And then Sarah sees the destruction that's happened, and it creates a world of further oppression, further division, and further continued destruction. And all of this is meant to be ringing in your minds when you get to Exodus, when you get to these people coming to the foot of a new mountain. See, the Eden though, is never explicitly said in the scriptures. Most scholars say by the way that it's described was very much so likely a mountain. That's why when they are, the people are removed from the presence there, then 
uh, removed from coming into this garden that is up on a mountain or a hill. That's why you get all this hill or mountain imagery in the Bible of God saying, hey, you want to come meet with me? Come meet with me on a mountain. And so you, now you get the people of God coming to a new mountain, and he's making a new covenant. I mean, that's what you get in Exodus 19, uh, verses 4 through 6, where God says to him, says, Hey, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now I bore you on the eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed will obey my voice, or another way uh, that word obey is another way to say is listen to my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's saying, hey, if, if you listen to my voice, if you keep my covenant, You'll be rulers with me. You will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to all the world. You will bring life and blessing and vitality to yourselves and to the world around you. And then he starts listing out all of these commands, all these laws, all these teachings of how they are to interact and how they are to act in their culture and their world. And if you read these laws, you'll also notice that beginning here and all through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all these books filled with laws, they'll also be punctuated with stories. Stories that show how Israel immediately disobeys the laws that they're given. And so after all these laws are given in Exodus, the very first law that's given of the Ten Commandments, the ten that we're actually kind of cool with, the first one is, hey, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second law, you shall not make an idol, not make a graven image to worship me. And then story one that happens after the giving of this law is the golden calf. Where Israel says, let's take all our gold, let's burn it and melt it down, turn it into a calf and worship it. Because there's this regular narrative flowing. Hey, as your God, as the one who made you and knows this world, I don't want you to take wisdom for yourself I want you to wait and walk and learn from me. Listen to my voice. Don't listen to the voices of those who are feeding you lies. Don't listen to the voice in your heart that continually says that it knows best. But rather, listen to my voice. Walk in my wisdom. And you will bring life to yourself and all those around you. Their inability of Israel to do what Adam and Eve fail to do, what Abraham, uh, Abraham fails to do, continues to bring destruction and death and oppression and war and eventually their own exile. And so one of the just points I would like to draw out of the narrative that we have seen thus far that led us to Exodus and the giving of the law, and when you read the law, you need to remember this, that there's a way to look at the law of God and be like, this has got to be wrong. This just doesn't fit into what I would see as wise and good and true. But look at the narrative of the story that says to follow after your own wisdom leads to the destruction of yourself and everyone around you. Because we want to look at our culture right now and be like, man, this is not the way that we would align things. And that's actually true. I'm going to get into that in a minute. This is actually not how I believe God would align things now in this time and this place. But we'll get back there in just a moment. But we look at this and we judge it from our cultural context. But the problem is, if you look at our cultural context right now, we believe that we've created life and vitality by creating ultimate freedom. 
by defining freedom is just the removal of all things that are obstructing me from choosing or receiving or enjoying anything of that which I choose to do. But yet we have to ask ourselves the classic Dr. Phil question of how is that working out for us? We live in a time and a place in a society where there is unprecedented amount of choice. We have access to all things that we would desire. We have nothing that stops us from doing or defining ourselves or doing anything that we want, and yet we have unparalleled rates of depression, anxiety, suicide continuing to rise. Because we find ourselves in a crazy moment where we realize that freedom is not being freed from all things that restrict us. True freedom is finding to live in a way and wisdom in the world in which it was designed, in which we were designed. It's finding the right and good restrictions on us and living into them and finding that which kills and destroys and breaks down our humanity and walking away from them. And so ultimately, in this narrative, and as we look at the law, I would encourage you to reflect upon the narrative of which it's in and reflect on, though many truths probably can be drawn out primarily, that as we look at the law and we look at our, our sense to want to judge the law, that regularly the narrative of Scripture, and I would say throughout the narrative of humanity, that those who decide to walk away from God's good, true, and right teaching and follow after their own voice or the voice of others find that leading to the destruction of themselves and everyone around them. And so that's the first point, is that the law, if we're reading it properly, we have to see it rooted in the narrative that it is. And secondly is this, if we read the law properly, we have to see that the law is rooted and reflective of the wisdom of God shellfish, bacon, polyester, and all. And let me take some time to walk you through that, because again, that's not immediately evident. See, ultimately, the word law, I've been using it, but I'm not a huge fan. It is a way to translate the word Torah, but I've said before, I think maybe a more reflective way to translate Torah is the word teaching, or the word instruction, that God is saying, hey, I know how all things are made, and I'm giving you, yes, I guess you could call them laws, but in some ways, I'm giving you ways to be human, ways to use your humanity the way that it was meant to be done. And he gives 613 laws throughout the Old Testament. And these aren't all the laws. You would need much more than just these, even to operate the sacrificial system in Leviticus. What they have is not sufficient. This is merely a sampling or maybe... Uh, just a collection of laws, but really it's God showing just a sampling of his wisdom and who he is. And what you get actually, if you take all 613 laws, that can kind of be intimidating. And so it could be helpful sometimes is to distill them down into categories and look at God's wisdom in those said categories. In fact, this morning, I'd like to borrow from Dr. Tim Mackey, Bible Project. He has four. I think they're helpful. And so we're going to walk through four categories in which you can take all 613 laws. And as you put them in these categories, you can see uh, God has these four core ideas that he's continuing to push into the minds of the Israelites and the people of that day. And he's reflecting. 
And it's like every single time you come back to that category, though it seems like that law is maybe repetitive, though slightly changing itself or slightly variating, it's like we've said before, sometimes the Old Testament plays like jazz. It's like a theme that gets picked up by one law, and then all of a sudden you come back to that category, and it's another law, but it's slightly different, and you pick up more of God's ideal or his, his wisdom that's underneath all of these laws. And so let me really quickly just walk through the wisdom that God is putting forward uh, these are not the only way that you can break laws down, but I think this is a helpful way. You can break them down these four categories. I've augmented them a little bit for my purposes. One uh, is the category of purity and sacrifice. Another one is the category of holiness. Next one is of sacred time and festivals. And the fourth is a category of justice. So really quickly, running through these things. The first category, many of God's laws can be broken into purity and sacrifice. You get God coming and saying, hey, here's how you're going to deal with ritual cleansings of just certain things that you're going to touch. If you touch something dead, I want you to cleanse yourself in such a way. If you get a skin disease, no, that's not your fault. But ultimately what that is, a reflection of death and destruction that's still very much so ushered into the world by sin. It's a reminder that, that you are marred by sin, that, that what's in your heart is sometimes just randomly going to show up in ways of, of death and sin showing up through a rash or a skin disease. If you have bodily fluids that emit that are meant to bring life, but now are, are being spilled, and now that life that was meant to be created is just a reminder that, that what meant to bring life is now bringing death, then you need to take a ceremony and you need to wash yourself and remind yourself that you need to cleanse yourself before you enter into the presence of God. Because I want you every single time that you have this skin condition, that you have bodily fluids uh, leak out, that you have all of these things that happen, I want you to remind yourself that these are a product of sin and death and destruction ushered in by you and your life and continually not listening to my voice. And that when you come into my presence, you're coming into somebody who's completely holy, completely pure, completely good, and that I can't have death in my presence and you live. It's not because I'm terrible that you can't be in my presence with death. It's because I'm so good. I'm so full of abundant life that death can't exist around me. And so I want you to reflect on how you take what is dead and broken and you wash it completely clean because that I am a God who will someday wash you completely clean and let you come back into my presence completely free from death, decay, disease, demonic, and all things that hold you down. And so all these ritual washings, they seem crazy, they seem pedantic, they seem overly detailed but they're meant to reflect on, on how deep death and decay is in our lives. It's in the mold of our houses, it says. And I want you to deal with it because I want you to continually be working towards purifying yourselves as one day you'll be made fully pure in my presence. Also, similarly, is sacrifice. As I said, the people are kicked out of the garden and actually uh, we reflect on the fact that the Garden of Eden was most likely a mountain, which is you get in Psalm 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean, heart, uh, clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You get all these reflections on sacrifice because ultimately God is trying to reflect on the fact that you have been removed from the presence of God. You can no longer ascend to his presence. But I'm going to make a way for you to ascend. 
And so I want you to regularly, when you sin or just regular times of the year, to be reminded of that which keeps you from my presence. I want you to take a pure and spotless lamb or a pure and spotless sacrifice. And I want you to sacrifice them on your behalf. And that pure sacrifice, when it is killed, when it changes form, it then will be burnt in an offering and the smoke will rise up into my presence. And that will symbolically represent you, forgiving you of your sin and assuring you that you someday will fully be in my presence. You will ascend because I will wash you of the darkness, of the sin, and the death within you. And so that's your first bucket, your first category of the law of God is continually reminding us of our need for, uh, to seek purity and sacrifice so that we might enter into uh, God's presence and that he will someday do that fully and forever. And then our next category uh, that you see is holiness. And this is where God is going to continually say all these things of saying, hey, I want you to live in a way that's separate than people who worship after lesser gods. And so I want you to not wear certain fabrics because those are the fabrics that the priests who worship those gods wear. I want you to not eat certain foods because those are foods that they eat and sacrifice in service to those other gods. I want you to not, I want you to eat in a specific way. I want you to eat in a way that is kosher because I want you to specifically not do what they do, which is to take a lamb and to boil it in the milk of its mother. That's cruel. No, I want you to eat in a way that shows, hey, you are more just and more at peace with the world than that. I want you to not get tattoos, not because I don't want you to get all tatted up and get a cool sleeve, but because ultimately that's how they are worshiping their gods. They're pursuing their god's name and writing them on their body. That was what a tattoo was then. He said, no, you don't write. You don't even write my name on your body. You don't use my name that way. My name is bigger than that. It's not meant to tattoo you. You have a bigger image of me on you. You don't tattoo some letters. You bear my image. He said, hey, I want you to reflect all the time when you see all these other ways that people are worshiping after false gods, that I want you to be completely removed from that because you are not just worshiping me as one God and filling it in with all these others. No, you are worshiping exclusively me because all of these other gods, again, have broken ways of viewing the world. They see you, their gods see the humanity as slaves. I see you as made of my image. And I don't want you to subtly influenced by their practices to be ones who slowly have your heart turn for me. Because we know, just in our life and time now, how subtle influence really moves a heart. I mean, we talk about all the time, while we're not like, like media, like anti-media, just the fact is, is like, it's probably the most influential force in your life. Just your source of media or your intake of media is regularly going to be that which influences and affects you. I mean, all the evidence of violence, violent behavior in, uh, in kids and violent video games and whatnot. Again, it's not like there's this hard, fast rule of you can't do that. You just need to be aware that when you're around something, it's going to influence you. And so God says, hey, I want you to not even be close to the way that they practice other uh, worshiping other gods. I don't want you to be influenced that. I don't want you to be comfortable with that. I want you to be far away from that because I don't want you to be led away from me. And so that's an entire another category. It's just like I want you to be separate and apart from the rest of the world so they can see you as different and so that you're not influenced by uh, something that is less than uh, what I have for you. 
The next category is sacred time and festivals. Go quickly in this one. This one is all based off of these festivals on the seventh day or these seven-day festivals or festivals in the seventh month, the Passover festival that's already given in Exodus as a part of this. And it's all based around the creation week of, the, of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 where God creates a world in six days. He takes disorder and he makes order. He takes chaos and he creates beauty. And then on the seventh day, he rests to stop and enjoy and reflect on that it's good. And there's something that you notice, that all the other six days, you have day and you have night, and then you get the next day, and you have day and you have night, and then you get the seventh day, and there's no repetition of day and night. It's meant to represent that the seventh day, in God's opinion, does not end. That there is coming a time after work and toil and and straining to create chaos into beauty and order, that we are going to sit down and feast and enjoy with God all of the goodness of creation. And that is a time that will not end. And so I want you to live in that reality now. I want you to take this festival, and on the seventh day, I want you to sit down and feast like you're in the new creations now. On every seventh day of the week, I want you to stop and enjoy and live in the, as if you are not a slave to creation or lay, a slave to work and a slave to just pushing up. I want you to stop and reflect on how you will rule and feast with me for eternity someday. And then on the seventh month, you're going to very much take the entire month just to have all of these festivals, all this time, continually reminding yourself that you are going to be in my presence and my rest for eternity one day. And so I'm going to give you all these laws to practice that and to work that into your humanity so that you become ones who know I am going to be in the presence of my good Father and worship him fully in ways that I can't fathom yet, but I'm practicing now. And then the last category is justice. And this goes from everything like, do you have railings in your house to how you treat the poor and the punishment of breaking laws? And grotesque things like the treatment of slaves and, and things where we look at this and be like, how is this the wisdom of God? We struggle with these. We see them as barbaric forms of justice. Let me say a couple things about these. First of all, God is describing a culture. He is not necessarily endorsing it. And then even as he does that, he's taking a culture and he's revolutionizing it from within. You see, chapter 21, you're going to see laws about slaves. And you say like, okay, why doesn't God just like be like, okay, my people, we abolish slavery right now. Okay, that cool? We're going to be really different and we're going to like show the whole world we all are made in the image of God. But God doesn't do that. Instead, he takes the institution of slavery. And he says, hey, here's how you're going to treat your slaves. In fact, every seventh day, they get the whole day off with you too. They're made in my image just as much as you are, and you treat them like that. In fact, after seven years, all slaves go free in my kingdom. See, God doesn't take slavery and just abolish it overnight. You can't just take a people, baptize them, and say, hey, now you go and you like, live perfectly now here and forever, uh, forevermore. Rather, he takes a people and he works with them 
and he sows the seeds in his law, which eventually become the complete abolishment of slavery through the people of God reflecting on his wisdom and taking it forward into what we have now, which is continually fighting for the equality and justice for all people of all backgrounds, of all ethnicities, of all types. And so you get him again taking slavery, and yes, not working it over, because you could say, I've heard it said that abolishing slavery at that moment would have been like abolishing electricity in our culture. But yet, as he takes it, he describes it as he is, and then he takes it somewhere completely different. Or here's another one, Deuteronomy 21.10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and takes them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire and take her to be your wife and bring her home with you to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off her clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month, and that you may go in uh, to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Again, this is another law where you just take this and you be like... This is, this is tough. But then you look at it again. And you see that God is entering into a situation that I think you very clearly see he doesn't condone. It's why you see all the Genesis 3 language. Hey, if you go and you see a woman, you desire her and you take her, all taken straight out of Genesis 3. Yeah, hey, this is something that represents the fall of humanity. This is something not the way that it was designed to be. But let's deal with the fact that you guys are doing this. And so here's what we're going to do. You're going to give her a full month. You're not going to come in and just rape her because she's made in your image. You're going to give her a full month to mourn, to take away the clothes of her captivity and be clothed in something new. And then you take her as your wife. And if you decide you're going to discard her as your wife... You don't sell her as a slave. She was never your property. She is made in the image of God. And what you're doing is wrong, and I'm going to curb it. And eventually, through these seeds and a continual progression of God and, and working throughout the Israelites, he's going to take institutions like these and he's going to destroy them. And you're like, why does God work this way? Why does God, again, just not kick the door and say, like, hey, everything's new now? But you think about the way that God actually works in your life. How did he come into your life? I don't know how he came into mine. He saved me from my sin in a second. Praise God, full stop. And now I've spent about 11, 12 years now walking with him and slowly rooting out deeper, deeper parts of sin in my own life, stepping into deeper forms of righteousness. Because when God comes into a person's life, when he comes into a culture, he meets them where they're at and he redeems them. See, he doesn't give the law and say, hey, you obey this, you're my people. He says, no, I'm covenanting to you to be my people. And now when you listen to my voice, you actually reflect it to the world. It's a different but very important difference. So he says, hey, he doesn't... He comes into a people as they are. And he revolutionizes and changes and forms them over time through his wisdom. I mean, that's how God comes into this world. This world goes off the rails in Genesis 3. And God at that 
moment just doesn't come in, like crush the snake and then say like, okay, party on. But rather he says, hey, no, this has entered into death and destruction in this world. And in my infinite wisdom, I'm going to work through history. I'm going to align peoples and nations and kings and battles and wars and movements of people groups. And I am going to, as Galatians 4 says, at just the right time, send my son to be born of a woman and to declare the kingdom that's coming and then be sacrificed for all the world. And that's where you get Jesus coming into this whole situation. Because again, the narrative of Scripture is the narrative of our lives. God says, hey, I want you to listen to my voice and everything in us finds ourselves completely unable to do that. But God comes in And he becomes the perfect fulfillment of law. He says, hey, I haven't come to abolish the law because all that is the wisdom of God that I'm taking into a new place. In fact, he says, here, I'm going to take the law. You've heard it said it's this. And I'm going to say, hey, you've heard it said eye for an eye, cheek for a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if somebody slaps your cheek, you turn to them your other cheek. It's not, hey, you just like, they took your eye, you even up and get theirs. They got their pound of flesh, you get yours. It's, hey, they take from you, and now here's how you get even with them. You give them the other side as well. And you lay down your life for your enemies. See, he takes the wisdom of God and says, hey, that was always there. And now as I've worked through time and humanity and life, I'm showing I'm the fulfillment of the law, and I'm taking parts of the law that you can now see the full wisdom of God in display. And then he lives perfectly. He lives obedient to God's commands in the truest way. In the book of John, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He was pure and completely clean. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, similar to the Adam and Eve narrative, except he doesn't say, hey, I'm going to take wisdom for myself. Rather, I'm going to wait patiently for God to give me all the things that you're tempting me with, that you're offering to me. And ultimately, he becomes the sacrifice, the chosen lamb that is spotless and blameless and takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus comes to take those who are born under the law, who cannot fulfill the law through their inability and disobedience. And he sacrifices himself for them so that they might be, receive his record of obedience and fulfillment and righteousness of the law. That's if you're here and you're a Christian in the room, that's what you have. You're not under the law. You're under Jesus' fulfillment under the law. When God sees you, he sees Christ, and he sees him who has perfectly fulfilled everything, everything, everything. And so as you read these things and you see God's wisdom and you see areas where you don't measure up, you know that I'm fully and fully forgiven of my sin and fully provided of righteousness in Jesus. But then he doesn't stop there. He also says, hey, I'm going to ascend up as the sacrifice before God and take care of your sin. And also it's good that I'm going to ascend because I do. I'm going to send my spirit. And my spirit is going to live into you or is going to go into you and is going to actually do what the law couldn't do. I'm going to write my wisdom and my knowledge and my walking with you on your heart so that now you become people that don't just like hear things and struggle to try to like do it externally, but have a heart that's turned away from me. I'm going to give you a heart that slowly and surely is formed into the image of my son and wants to do all that is good, wants to bring life. 
and as that Spirit fills you and you walk in the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, then you're going to bring life to yourself and everyone around you as you bring my kingdom. That's what we reflect every week in communion, is reflecting on the fact that Jesus' death has fulfilled the law for us, and that his spirit is actually doing what the law couldn't do, which is giving us a heart that actually wants to follow after the wisdom of God, to listen to his voice. On a day-in, day-out basis, we're not having to go back to these old laws and figure out how do I live these now. You can't live most of these because that's just not the same culture we live in. But rather, he takes the wisdom from these laws and he's going to apply them through his spirit to your actual day, your actual time, and you can actually live into them not because you have to, but because you actually have a Spirit of God that wants to within you. And so we come forward in communion just recognizing that we're very much so the people in progress, that we're very much so those who are still waiting for God to continue to shape us and move us in his life, that he came and he saved us from our sin in a moment, but he is still week by week, day by day, continuing to shape us into his wisdom and our taking of communion is just a continual reminder that his sacrifice of his body broken for us and his blood shed for us is still covering us and cleansing us and that it is still entering into us. His spirit is still moving and shaping and growing in us to actually create hearts that want to walk with him. And so if you're a Christian, I invite you to come forward uh, and, and take of this. There'll be bread to be broken and dipped into the cup around the room. Uh, they'll be gluten-free up here as well as there will be people to pray for you that will be uh, behind the pipe and drape here by the connect table. Our prayer team is wanting to pray for people uh, wherever you might be. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, give us your spirit now to continually give us a heart that desires to follow after you, that honestly in our heart wants to find our way and our walk and our wisdom in who you are, not after our own ways of seeking freedom and our own ways of seeking life, which lead to destruction to ourselves and everyone else, but coming and, and following you where you would go and be those who bring life and become a holy nation, royal priesthood, bringing that life into the world around us through a kingdom of life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Heart. I know that while in heaven he 
unbidden events depart. No tongue can bid me events depart. And Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the one risen Son of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the one, risen sign of God. Hold him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the one risen Son of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, praise the one risen sign of God. Let's read our giving liturgy together, um, reminding ourselves. Uh, that we are justified before the law of God and the righteous uh, are not justified before our law, before our faith. Uh, and then uh, we'll pass baskets uh, after we read this, just a way to give Kingsley on Sunday. Some people give through a basket, or you can also give online, which there's information to do so in the worship guide. Let's read this, and then I'll do a couple of announcements and send you out with the benediction as they pass baskets. It says this. Read with me. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So as we pass baskets now, uh, let me just make you aware of a couple things. First of which, connect card. If you're new, if it's your first time, 
Would you please fill that out and drop it off in our Connect box? We'd love to get connected with you. Uh, it's a good way to connect with community life, our missional communities, uh, serving, uh, just connecting with a pastor or just any way that we can do that. We will follow up uh, in, the, in the coming week. Um, and then also you'll notice the service questionnaire on your seat as well. Uh, or if not your seat, then one nearby you. If you're a regular tender or a member, we'd ask you to fill that out real quick and leave it on your chair, and we'll pick it up after this service. We're trying to find out. We have a, a team of people that are just initiating some ways that we can, as an entire congregation, serve our neighborhood and serve our community. And so we want to know what you and your MC or other things are already going on to make sure that we're not missing out on just the things that are already happening so that we might align what God has already given us and is already doing in people's lives and hearts. So fill it out, leave it on your chair. Uh, two things to make you aware of. First of which, there's a member meeting today. So if you're a member, uh, meet us at 4.30 at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the sanctuary. Um, if you have not uh, emailed or registered for child care, email me, kentasomaindy.com, or Hannah E at somaindy.com, Hannah and the letter E, uh, for Edwards, uh, so that we can uh, just be prepared for uh, the amount of kids that we'll have. So names and ages, you can send those to either of us. Um, and then also... Uh, we are hiring at SOMA. Uh, thank you so much to Adam and Emily and Jackson who are leading uh, as volunteers this week. Uh, but our music uh, director role uh, is uh, something that we're hiring for as our last week, Deanna, uh, Bo- or Deanne Boato, who was in our, this role last, uh, just her last week was her last week. Still a member of our church, but just not able to uh, continue on as our music director in this season due to school and internships and all of those things. Uh, but yeah, that leaves us the opportunity to just continue to search for who might uh, lead as a director role, a part-time uh, role. So if you're interested in that uh, or know somebody who would be interested, you can send them the link or you can email me to apply uh, as we'll be looking for that here in the next uh, weeks and months. So uh, let me now, with is also let me send you out with a benediction, which is from Galatians chapter 2. For through the law... I died to the law so that I might live to God. Peace be with you.